Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus. We'll be reading chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 10. Exodus 1, 15 to 2, 10. I didn't preface this last week, but you saw from the order of worship that the Advent series is Christ in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. So I'm taking one messianic prophecy, one allusion in each of the books, and seeing the fulfillment in the New Testament. So we see that in Exodus 1. Let's go to our God in prayer, asking for his help before we hear his word read. O God, cause us to see through the power of your word and spirit, your truth, we pray. Amen. Exodus 1, 15 through 2, verse 10. Hear now the word of God. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. <clears throat> and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for want of a nail. This popular poem shows the importance of what some have called the butterfly effect, the effect that some apparently insignificant act 
would have on a much grander scale. The nail seemed irrelevant in the big story of kingdom battles. After all, it is just a nail, something that is easily lost or carelessly thrown out, perhaps even on a regular basis. And yet, this nail proved profitable. It served the horse, which served the rider, who served his kingdom, and whose service won the battle for his king. I want us this morning to consider how our sovereign God uses the seemingly insignificant actions of weak people to bring about the deliverance utterly necessary for all of life. Deliverance is a necessity in a fallen world, and so the Lord provides a deliverer. The start of Exodus tells us of a new pharaoh in town. This new pharaoh had no regard or love for Joseph or for the people of God as the previous one had. It was through Joseph that God preserved the nation of Egypt during those years of famine, you'll recall. This preservation was primarily for the sake of the Israelites, of course, and not for the Egyptians. Nevertheless, God's redemptive grace for a nation crying out for deliverance had some common grace effects on the Egyptians for a time. And the Pharaoh in Joseph's time was well pleased with Joseph. After all, he and his nation were preserved through this man. But a new Pharaoh, one who did not know the Lord of Joseph, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this new Pharaoh had no misgivings about giving the Israelites pain, and lots of pain, really. Seven days a week affliction, with double the demands and fewer the supplies to meet the demands. This new Pharaoh was afraid. He feared the overthrow, his own overthrow, through an ever-multiplying people. And he refused to let these people go. He did not want them to enter into the promised land. He was certainly happy to have all of these workers for him. What better solution to suppress a population threat than to kill some of the population? And so he says to the Hebrew midwives, again in verse 15 of chapter 1, If you see a baby boy, kill it right away. Let the girls live. The lie that he believed lives on in the lives of the post-born who want to end the pre-born. You've got to have pop, proper population control, right? That's the thinking. You know, the, the more people there are, the more mouths that need to be fed, You certainly don't want to bring into this world a baby that is doomed to starve now, do you? So like the world, this king of Egypt cared more for his mouth than those who are under his charge. So again, the counsel is, the command is, just kill the baby boys. And in the midst of this deadly predicament, we see the faithfulness of normal people. Just a normal husband and wife, and just normal midwives. Are we given the name of this husband? Are we given the name of this wife? No. We're told just a man from the house of Levi who happened to marry a Levite woman, and they just happened to have a child. There's nothing spectacular about that, right? Of course, the the text says that this child was a fine child, and Stephen Acts 7 says that he was beautiful, 
but whose children aren't fine children, whose children aren't beautiful children, who doesn't praise God for his supposedly miraculous child. This couple did what husbands and wives before them did and after them will do. They had children as far as they were providentially equipped. And who are these midwives? At least we are told their names. We have a Shifra and a Pua. But who is a Shifra, really? And in the history of people, who's a Pua? It's not a common household name. You probably haven't said those words at all this year, unless you were reading through the Bible and you came to Exodus. They helped deliver babies, just as their midwife teachers had taught them to do. They brought into this world babies just as countless others had done and would do. They didn't add to their midwifery some magic, some confetti, some other specialty to cause them to stand out. Look how great midwives we are with our excellent delivery practices. What they did was done out of fear. But this is done out of a fear that is worth imitating. This is a commendable fear. This is a fear that differs remarkably in kind from the fear that plagued Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's fear was that the people who would, if big enough, be his downfall. And if they left his presence, then they would not be able to be his slaves. But their fear was a fear of the Lord, that saw God as supreme over all things, over all kings, yes, even over this Pharaoh. And so they used their mouths to deny Pharaoh what he thought he deserved. He thought he deserved the truth, didn't he? But, you know, you don't get to have honesty. You don't get to have truthfulness when you intend to use that truth for the murder of babies. You don't get to have the full picture. And so these midwives say, oh, these Hebrew women, Pharaoh, you've never seen women like these women. Their labor pains last moments, not hours like those Egyptian women. Such vigorous wombs that can hardly wait to bring into the world such children of God. Oh, and we certainly wouldn't want to perform any postnatal abortions now, would we? How godless that would be, wouldn't it? Well, they wouldn't, but Pharaoh would. And so the child must be hidden. Pharaoh, like many doctors today, have authority to protect life, but instead choose to end life. And so his decree stood firm. If you find a baby boy, you must terminate that boy. Parents know that newborns cry. Even non-parents know this. But for the first few months, their cries do not compare to those of later months, typically. Okay. And so the child must be contained and could be contained for a short period of time. But as this fine child's lungs grew, so did his cries. And so something must now be done. But, but what? What can they do? How can you contain a baby? It's very difficult. And at this point in the story, the modern reader and many storytellers are mistaken. 
The picture that many paint is that of a child floating in a basket down a river. As if the mother had no regard for her child, whose very life she sought to preserve. And she just takes it up chance, just throw that baby down the river. That's not what it is. That's not what the text is saying. She put the baby in a basket. And what's noteworthy here is that this word for basket is used in Genesis 6, 5, to speak of the ark, the ark of God. And she daubs it with bitumen and pitch, just like Noah's ark had been so daubed. And she places this ark basket among the reeds by the riverbank. And quite the turn of providence, the child's big sister was doing what a big sister ought to do. She was watching over her little brother. And we know the name of this big sister. This is Miriam. And so for Miriam, just another normal human being, we can give thanks to God. This daughter of the no-named man, of no-named woman from the house of Levi, was true to her parents. But the daughter of Pharaoh was not true to her dad. She was not true to her dad's decree. She went to bathe in the Nile River, saw him among the reeds, and she had pity on the child. The exact opposite of what was to be done. No pity. Kill the kid. And remarkably, not only does Pharaoh's daughter pay her dad no mind, she pays the child's nurse, the mother herself, to take good care of the baby until he is grown. Imagine being paid for caring for your own child. Here we have normal people that are being used by God. Now, the mock family watches the Home Alone movies, just the first two are worth watching every Christmas season. And one of the messages of the Home Alone movies is we have some normal people that really come to save the day. Check it out, it's old man Marley, and he, he, people think that he is this mass murderer who is, you know, covering the streets not with salt, but dead bodies. And the way that Buzz explains it doesn't make any sense, of course. And we say, wow, old man Marley, you know, what a, what a great guy, as we continue to watch the movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you. He comes and saves the day, and he hits these foolish thieves over on the head. And Home Alone 2, this pigeon lady, this homeless lady who's covered in pigeons, who is pigeon's lover, she's got the food, but nobody really um, considers her. Everyone overlooks her. But to overlook her is a mistake because she becomes instrumental in, again, suppressing the plans of Harv and Merv and their, their desire to end Kevin. They're not the, the crux of the story, of course, but they are instrumental in the salvation of, of Kevin and, of course, the imprisonment of these foolish burglars. Just normal people in the story that turn out to do really important things. Shifra, Pua, this man, this woman, Miriam, just normal people 
used by God to frustrate the plans of the supposed mighty, this Pharaoh, king of Egypt. No one is more powerful than he, but even he can be conquered through just the normal means of normal people when they are put in the hands of God. These Hebrew midwives were true to the Lord and so false to Pharaoh. The king's daughter disobeyed her dad, was false to him, and drew the child out. Ironically, then, Pharaoh got his wish. You remember in verse 22, he says, cast those boys into the Nile. But Moses was not lying dead in the Nile. He was delivered out of the Nile. And so the future deliverer was delivered by the hands of normal people who so feared God that the fear of man was not even a second thought. This is how we ought to live our lives, dear ones, fearing God over man. What can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? I serve the king of heaven and earth, and he uses me for his holy purposes, and him alone will I serve. His will alone will I submit to. And this child, this Moses, whom all of Israel will one day memorialize, was really nothing special when you really think about it. And at this, we might object. How could anyone ever say something like that? Do we not know Moses' reputation? Do we not know that it was through Moses' leadership that Israel was delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians? Granted, do we not know that it was through Moses that the people were led through the Red Sea? Yes, of course. Do we not know that it was from Moses that the people of God were given the very law of God? Yes, of course. But no doubt you have caught on by now. The story really isn't about Moses, now is it? Paul says that Moses was a mere servant in the household of God. He was not the son of God. This servant then serves us well by pointing to another, to the son. The life of Moses from his birth through his mediatorial leadership is intended to make us think of the birth and the mediation of another, one whose birth was both normal and, from another perspective, entirely not normal. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, as we read in Matthew 2. His mother was a real mother, made of real flesh and blood, and a real sinner to boot. She acknowledged her own neediness, her own sinfulness, her own unworthiness. There was nothing magical about her labor. There was no confetti. There was no gender reveal party. There was nothing magical or special about that. She and Joseph were in a stable. Again, nothing special. But they had a real live birth. And when the fullness of time had come, this Christ, as our confession summarizes, took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of the nature, yet without sin. He became truly man. And he entered a world that was truly sick. 
It was desperately wicked, and it was desperately sick, because there was one man, the first Adam, who subjected the world to that futility. Yet, he was, Christ was, without sin. So he was truly man, because Mary was truly woman, a mother who gave birth like millions of people before her had done, and many more will. In this way, then, he is like us. He can begin humanly to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And yet, this is not the whole story. And if ever it were preached as the whole story, you should make a beeline to the session to register a formal complaint. Just yesterday, I heard a quote from the the mouth of Andy Stanley himself. He's not known for greatest sound doctrine. But he says this, if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world. Because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing. And in fact, you should know that, you should know this, that Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. The truth of Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth of the birth narratives, he is saying. I mean, that's just so obviously godless, is it not? It's just so obviously heretical. See what he's doing there. He's emphasizing the resurrection But the same word that speaks of the resurrection of Christ gives us the incarnation of Christ, gives us the birth narrative. You cannot have the resurrection of Christ if you don't have this miraculous incarnation. There's a reason the gospel writers start with the birth narrative, because it is essential, because it is, for crying out loud, a fulfillment of prophecy. So avoid Andy Stanley's stuff. Wasn't the main message, but we just see even Christian preachers are downplaying this important truth. Because a basic doctrine of Scripture centers on what is not normal in this situation. Joseph took his wife, Mary, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son. He did not lie with her as men normally lie with women in order to produce a child. The mother was a virgin when she gave birth. She knew no man. It's that clear. Just as the prophet Isaiah had foretold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And in this way, then he is is unlike us because he comes from heaven above. A divine descent no mere man can claim as his own origin story. He is in a class of his own. He is from the Father above. He is not just man, but so we needed him as man. He wasn't just man. He is truly God. He is the God-man. Let us not be ashamed of this miraculous virgin birth. Let us wholeheartedly adopt it. Say, yes, this is what the Word of God says. This isn't Is it unclear? And it was at this time 
that the Pharaoh's spiritual son did as his father. Herod's plan had the appearance of wisdom, and it was much less direct than Pharaoh's. Herod said to the wise men, Hey, when you, when you see this sidereal son, this star child, let me know. Why? So that I too may come and worship him just like you have come to do. I want to worship him just like you guys. Is that a deal? No deal. As their actions will later show. Because they were warned of the wicked heart of Herod. They were warned by an angel. As Pharaoh was foiled by his daughter, so now Herod was tricked by the wise men. Don't you just love it when the villain's villainous plans are vanquished? Such joy should fill your heart when you see Herod failing, when you see the Pharaoh failing, when you see good overcoming evil, the greatest good, Jesus Christ himself, overcoming evil. But sadly, Villains do not go down without swinging. There is a reason it took seven books for Harry Potter to take down Voldemort. Another spoiler alert, I'm sorry about that. I'll just let you read the story. But Voldemort is a formidable foe. A snake-like figure who hounds Harry Potter and seeks to terminate the chosen one. And this serpentine seed, this Herod, swept his tail at the Bethlehem boys that year. And so Rachel wept for her children, and she refused to be comforted. These Bethlehem boys, Herod must have thought, satisfied his demand for payment. And so it would certainly seem like Herod had won, for Mary and Joseph fled to Moses' old stomping grounds. But oh, this was to show that God's son Israel, just as God's son Israel came out of Egypt through Moses, so now the Son of God will come to bring full deliverance. And the Bethlehem mothers can be comforted, and we all must insist on being comforted because this child, this Christ, would three decades later pay for our protection. There is no use talking about the birth of this better Moses if his death is not before our faces. The incarnation means nothing to us if there is no crucifixion. The death of the incarnate one was the most remarkable deed of all the mighty deeds. For want of a nail, the cross was lost. For want of the cross, the resurrection was lost. For want of the resurrection, the white horse had no rider named Faithful and True. For want of the rider, the battle and kingdom was lost against the kingdoms of the world. And so praise God for the rider. Praise God for the white horse. Praise God for the resurrection. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for the nail. And praise God for the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your inspired word of that shows us Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, the better mediator, the mediator of a better covenant. And we're thankful for your servant Moses and what he did for the people. But oh, how thankful we are, how much more thankful we are for that son 
in the household of God, Jesus Christ himself, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by this Son's continued spirit ministry through his word. Amen.